I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition. Today, we want to devote the show to answering your e emails. They're piling up, and I need to get to them. Uh, you've been very, very great about participating with us in the Bible studies, and I just don't get to answer more of your email questions each week. Uh, because we really get so many phone calls and lots of emails. So we're just going to go and answer the emails today. So this is, and of course, you can continue to send us emails by writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com or follow and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. We'll try to take those. So let's start off with an email from Matthew in Tacoma, Washington. He says, Hi, Father Mitch. I've been trying to be a good Christian as well as a patriot, and I've been praying over the war in Ukraine. Good. And I don't know how to pray as I should. I am mad about the war and Putin and the Russian people. I'm praying for the war to end. I'm praying for the dead, the wounded, and the displaced. But how do I pray for the Russians? How do I pray for the church in Russia? I pray to put God first, and then the church, and then my country next. But is that just flattery? Do you have any suggestions, Matthew? A, the only other thing I would put there is that ahead of your country, put your family. It should be uh, God first, and the church, and your family, and your country after that. And this is of important order to, uh, for you to keep. Now, in, I'll tell you how I am praying for uh, Mr. Putin, and for the Russian people, and for the Russian Orthodox Church. I pray that they do the same and put God ahead of country. Nationalism is a very sinful approach. It's not the same as patriotism. Patriotism comes from the word for father, as in fatherland and such, pater in Latin, and refers to your heritage and your country. And you should love your country and be willing to serve it in a variety of ways. But you cannot put the various issues of your country ahead of God, ahead of the church teaching. This has always led to an increase of violence since the theory of nationalism came into play. It was a very big issue, especially after the wars of religion in the 1500s and 1600s. People started to say falsely that, uh, following Thomas Hobbes, that religion was the biggest cause of war. But as soon as nationalism became a big issue during the French Revolution. It became the dominant philosophy of revolutionary France. And they removed God from primacy and, removed and persecuted the church, 
And as a result, they killed more people in the 25 years of the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars than had been killed in the previous 1800 years of Christian life. That's the reality. In just 25 years, they killed more than in 1800 years of any religious wars of the past. Now, this is still the case in Russia. Mr. Putin is a nationalist and he's trying to get nationalistic uh, sentiments to motivate his people. And we want to pray that they put God first. We pray for a conversion of heart, that the Ten Commandments of God come ahead of Russia's national interests, which is what we must also do for the United States. Those politicians, and I've heard them, I've had local politicians, state politicians in this state of Alabama tell me that I may not speak against abortion because the Supreme Court made it the law. No, I must speak against it. The law of man that contradicts the law of God has to be changed. But it's also true in Russia. And we have to pray for the Russian people to also, as a nation, come to this realization that the commandments of God, thou shalt not steal Ukrainian land, thou shalt not kill Ukrainian people or anybody else. This is what needs to, to happen. I pray for that conversion and that the leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church make that more clear. Now, I would add this. Mr. Putin lied to his soldiers. Apparently, he told them that they were going for war games. And it turned into something they didn't realize until it was too late. And many of them have written notes on the walls of Ukrainian buildings, apologizing, and say, we didn't know this, we didn't want to do this, we are sorry. And we want to pray for their consciences as human beings, as for those of them who are Christian, for those who are committed to Christ as members of the Russian Orthodox Church, that they would be filled with remorse and let their conscience become primary. Pray for that. Pray for that. And pray for the Ukrainian people. They have a right and a need to protect their country. The violence that's being done against them is horrible. And they need to defend. It doesn't look like they would just be, if they surrendered, it would just be a nice occupation. That's not what it, it's hostile. And so the way that Mr. Putin has set it up, and the shame is on him. So let's pray for conversion for the Russians. Let's pray for the Ukrainian people also to have clarity of what they have to do without seeking a vengeance that destroys their own hearts and consciences. To take back their country is necessary. To fight for their freedom and for their land and their rights is part of patriotism. But to seek revenge is not. And that's not Christian either. 
So we pray for everyone involved and for the international leaders to do everything in their possible, possible power so that our president and the leaders of Europe and NATO continue to take even more steps to put pressure on Russia to stop this evil war. These kind of convert and courage and clarity and wisdom is what we have to pray for for the other international leaders. Too many are afraid because they need Russian oil and gas and they care more about heat in their homes than they do heat in hell. And all of us have to do what we can to pray for a righteous and just resolution of this. That would be my sense. Okay. All right, we have an email from Mark in Milwaukee. Father, can you talk about the Catholic charismatic movement? Is it a good thing? Is it in line with church teaching? One of the interesting things is that a Catholic charismatic renewal began in February of 1968 at Duquesne University when there was a retreat in which a number of people had read about this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that a number of evangelicals had experienced. And they were very moved out during that retreat a few folks had been drawn to, just a couple, had gone over to the chapel and were just spending time in prayer. And more joined them. And as they were there, they began to pray in tongues and continued to grow in this. And they called for help from some evangelicals to understand what was going on. They explained that this is an experience that they typically call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And that now you've received the Holy Spirit to come to our church. And they said, no, we're Catholic. We want to stay Catholic. Surprised the evangelicals. But what happened is that they not only remained very committed to their Catholic faith, they began a process of evangelization. And this spread from Duquesne University to Notre Dame University, a few leaders there, and also to some uh, Catholic leaders, uh, in, like our own Ralph Martin, who was working in the Curcio movement in Ann Arbor, Michigan, as I recall. And from those three places, but especially from Notre Dame and Ann Arbor, this Catholic charismatic experience began to grow. And in fact, in fact, it now, it, uh, we now have about 10 to 15 percent of Catholics around the world who have experienced this charismatic renewal. What it means is that the Holy Spirit is released. That, that's, as a matter of fact, that's oftentimes the kind of terminology that the Catholic charismatics tend to use. Instead of a baptism in the Holy Spirit, so that they don't get confused with either the sacrament of baptism 
or the sacrament of confirmation. They talk about it as a release of the Holy Spirit. It's not another sacrament, but rather the Holy Spirit who is present within us is released and they experience a more lively relationship with the Holy Spirit who directs them to Jesus more closely. And this is a very important uh, part of the experience. They want to get closer to Christ. And so the, um, this is spread. And one of the great ironies is that today there are more Catholic charismatics than all of the Protestant charismatic denominations in the world combined. And I didn't know that myself, but I learned that from a colleague of mine from when I was in grad school at Vanderbilt who had gone to teach at a Church of God at Cleveland, Tennessee seminary. And he was shocked and surprised that there were so many Catholic charismatics and that we were the largest Pentecostal church uh, and larger than all of them combined, Pentecostals, Charismatics and all that were larger than all of them combined. This has been something that um, back, I think it was in 1976, there was a large Charismatic conference in Rome and Pope St. Paul VI attended that prayer meeting. They had mass first and then there was a prayer meeting and he came in and spoke to them and welcoming them. Pope St. John Paul II did the same about 1981. I had a little part in that too. It's a kind of interesting story. I've, I've been involved in the charismatic renewal since 1972. And it helped me tremendously at that time because I was, for a variety of reasons, I had gotten involved in what the, were the early stages of the New Age movement. And it was my involvement in a charismatic prayer group in Cincinnati, Ohio, called the New Jerusalem, that uh, I got me away from all that stuff and got me into a whole new approach toward understanding my Catholic faith better. Uh, so that was my experience as well. Well, a Polish priest from Warsaw had come to Chicago. I met him at mass, invited him to my dinner, to, to dinner at my home. And then he came with me to a prayer group, got involved and also had this experience of the release of the Holy Spirit. Very quiet. For me, it was very quiet too, no shouting or anything. And he brought the charismatic renewal back to Warsaw, started the charismatic movement in Poland. And later he was in Rome for this conference in 81. And Pope St. John Paul was an old friend of his. They had been on the National Seminary Committee. And he, along with some other Polish priests, introduced him to what was going on and his approval was also there. So this has been, and, uh, Pope Francis has been involved in it in Argentina. So this is something that's been very much part of the church. And it's um, something that is very much consistent with our Christian life. 
The only difficulty I've seen in the past decades is that instead of evangelization, too many of the prayer groups have focused on healing so much that they neglect basic evangelization. We have to be good evangelizers, all of us. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are simply there to help us. And it's not just speaking in tongues. There are lots of other gifts the Holy Spirit gives, including wisdom and understanding and knowledge. These are very important gifts. We need that to evangelize better, especially in today's world. Okay? All right. And then we have one from Mary. Father Mitch, recently on March 5th, I celebrated 25 years of celibacy since my son's father left us in 19. 97. I've never been with a man again, but I do sometimes have lustful feelings, and I am now in my mid-60s, and they just don't go away. I try to keep my eyes pure, not look at anything more than Hallmark movies, but what else can I do? Mary. Oh, Mary, this is um, a heroic living out of your Catholic faith. If there are no grounds for an annulment, um, you may not get an annulment. It might have been some, I guess you had a valid marriage. But living out celibacy in that situation has a couple things going with it. First, you need to pray for the grace of this chastity. There's a chastity that belongs to marriage by which you remain faithful to your spouse. There's a chastity that is celibate in which you refrain from sexual contact with anyone. This belongs to all those who are not married. That we made, if we're not in the married state, then celibacy is our role. And, but we have to ask. Now, one of the good things is that Jesus Christ, our Lord, also was celibate. And he won for us the grace to be celibate. And you need to continue to ask for that grace. That's one aspect. And, and just ask him to strengthen you. Secondly, you also can realize that sexuality is meant for procreation. This is a creative drive that's given within us. And what you can do as someone who lives a celibate chastity is say, Lord, redirect this drive that's within me. And it's a good drive. It's not evil. It's not bad at all. It's a good drive meant for procreation, but redirect that same energy to creativity. Many people redirect it towards art. Many people redirect it towards service of other people and becoming creative in that service. There are all sorts of ways to become even more creative than you already are. So ask for the wisdom to know how to redirect that very good procreative drive into other forms of creativity. 
And I'm only a few years older than you, but I've heard from the guys older than I that that drive doesn't go away. So don't expect temptation to be completely gone. Seek for the rest of your life to constantly redirect that towards creativity and service. And our Lord will continue to bless you greatly. All right, we need to take a break. We'll be back in a couple minutes with more of your emails. So please stay with us. Welcome back. We are still doing this uh, mailbag show, trying to answer some of your emails. And this one is from Bob in Massachusetts, who says, Father Mitch, my sister converted to the Jehovah's Witnesses about 15 years ago. She believes that Archangel Michael is Jesus. Correct. That's what they believe. Also, that group invests much of their time in the Old Testament and almost dismisses the New Testament. My sister clearly proclaims there is no Trinity. What books would you suggest I read to promote our Catholic faith to a person who is entrenched with these beliefs? Um, the number of uh, things that you can read. Let me just give a, a, first a quick response to the arch. Angel Michael text, okay? They believe that Jesus is the Archangel Michael. How did they come to that? It says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that with the uh, voice of a trumpet, the arc, uh, you know, Christ will appear. And uh, with, the, excuse me, with the voice of an archangel, Christ will appear. Okay, that's where they get that from. Now, in that, they say, well, if Jesus appears with the voice of an archangel, see, this is how they punctuate the Greek manuscript, that Jesus is the one with the voice of an archangel. The only archangel the Bible names, in their Bible, they don't have the book of uh, Tobit, but the only archangel that the Bible names is Michael. Therefore, if Jesus comes with the voice of an archangel and the only named one is Michael, then Jesus must be the archangel Michael. That's their foolish logic, a logic based on poor punctuation of a Greek sentence. Okay? Now, how do you refute that? Uh, first of all, I'm going to mention a book that may be useful to you. It's by Dr. Walter Martin. Dr. Martin uh, was a, a Baptist preacher. 
In fact, he and I debated each other on Catholic and Protestant issues uh, quite some years ago. Before, uh, he's passed away now back in 89. Um, but uh, back in 87 and 88, he and I debated each other. But like a lot of other street punks, he was from New York, I was from, I'm from Chicago. And when you, sometimes when you get into a good uh, fight, then you end up being buddies. And he and I, we didn't punch each other out, but we did argue and debate, not only on, uh, on TV and the John Ankerberg show, but he would invite me over to his home. We became good friends, uh, you know, I cherish his friendship very, very much. Uh, and there was a guest at his home a number of times. But anyway, Walter um, would, uh, wrote a book called The Kingdom of the Cults. The Kingdom of the Cults. That has a nice big chapter on Jehovah's Witnesses. And I think he's got another book. You can look up Walter Martin and Jehovah's Witnesses. I think he has a whole book just about Jehovah's Witnesses. He's got some great material there. But one of the things I learned from him is to take a look at what was one of his favorite books. In fact, he um, made this into his license plate when he, out there in California. Uh, the book of Jude is one that he liked much. And in Jude, verse 9, remember, letter of Jude has only one chapter. So in Jude, verse 9, it says, Yet Michael the archangel when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. So Michael did not even dare to rebuke Satan. Now pay attention to that. In the New Testament, our Lord Jesus repeatedly uses exactly the same Greek word, epitimesai. He uses that repeatedly to rebuke Satan and the demons. Now, if Jesus does dare to rebuke Satan over and over again. But it says in Scripture that the Archangel Michael does not rebuke, does not dare to rebuke Satan. How can Jesus be the Archangel Michael? By the way, uh, the producer did a great job. He found the book. It's called Jehovah of the Watchtower is the name of a book, Jehovah of the Watchtower by Walter Martin and Norman Klan. Okay, they co-wrote it. Um, I, would, I would urge you to take a look at that. There's one other verse that I would also want people to take a look at, and that is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6 where it says, again, when he, that is the Lord, brings his, his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. 
and that's the word proskuneo in Greek. And, uh, well, in this case, it's proskunesatosan, uh, which is a form of that same word. What's interesting is that when Satan tempts Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 and Luke 3, he says, worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms of the world. And Lord Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord a God before him shall you bow down or serve. He's quoting Deuteronomy, and he uses the same verb. So you can only worship the Lord God. But it says here, very clearly, let all God's angels worship Christ. Now, if you can only worship the Lord God, and if God's angels are told to worship Christ, does that not indicate that Jesus is God the Son? Does in my logic. The reason that the Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is God the Son is that their founder had uh, been uh, a salesman. He uh, ran some of his father's shops. It was men's stores that he, he ran. And he would run these men's stores since the time he was 14. He, he was running, managing a store. By the time he was 16, he was managing a few stores for his father uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he used to engage atheists in debates uh, on the street. People could, in those days, we had freedom of speech. And not like you do at the universities today. He had the freedom to argue various points of view. And he would argue about the existence of God. And in those debates, he always won. But as a 16-year-old, self-taught, he didn't go to school after he was 14. He was working. So what he did is uh, he would debate them on the Trinity, and he didn't know how to prove the Trinity is true. So, despite being raised, I think, in the Presbyterian Church, since he couldn't prove the Trinity at 16 years old, apparently nobody could. So he denied the, the, the truth of the Blessed Trinity. And eventually, with the help of some folks from the Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, that he, he broke off from them, by the way, but he got some of his apocalyptic teachings from the Seventh-day Adventists, and then got his own denial of the Blessed Trinity on his own, because nobody's as smart as he is. Therefore, if he can't prove it, nobody can. And he began the Jehovah's Witnesses as a result, uh, predicting the end of the world for 1874, then again 1914, and I think again in 1974. Yes, it was 74. Um, they kept doing that. Um, 
so there, there are plenty of things you can work on in terms of uh, dealing with this, um, as well as showing a great love. You know, um, that's something that would be uh, a good thing to do. Be very charitable. I guarantee you, though, she won't return that. It's too, you know, I've, I've dealt with a number of Jehovah's Witnesses over the years. And they get very angry because they can't cope with refutation of the things that the Kingdom Hall teaches them. They can't cope with that. So be very patient. Say what you have to say and don't try to push it. Let her be in peace and let the, and pray for her and fast for her that the Holy Spirit stir within her. And on God's time, let it come back to the real Jesus instead of the false Jesus of the Kingdom Hall of the Jehovah's Witnesses. All right, and then uh, from Teresa, Hi, Father Mitch. Did the people in the Old Testament live the long lives that are spoken about them? Moses is 120 and Seth is 900. Um, you know, a, a lifespan of 120 is not unheard of even in modern times. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the oldest survivor of COVID was a nun, or is a nun. She's still alive. Uh, she survived COVID at age 117. Right now, she's about 119 years old. Um, kind of close to Moses' age. There's also, uh, uh, there are a couple places one is in the country of Georgia, and another one is uh, in Central Asia. I, I, I'm sorry, I can't tell you the country it's in anymore. Um, <laughs> a lot of these countries have changed names since I was a kid. But anyway, there's this valley where people live to be 140 on a regular basis. Not everybody, but it is a regular thing for them to live a very long life. And they are studied for their longevity. Um, I met there were, when I was a kid, there were people who still were alive when the uh, serfs were freed from serfdom in Russia. So, you know, there's some of these folks. Now, nine, one of the other things about the ages in the earlier part, first of all, we see lists of ancient kings in Sumerian king lists that live 10,000 years. And so compared to those lists of the same period of time, um, these are, um, you know, very moderate. Something, if I ever retire, one of the things I intend to do is study those ages um, in more detail. The reason is this. Numbers in Hebrew are also letters of the alphabet, just like Roman numerals. You know how Roman numerals are letters of the alphabet? We use Indian numerals. We call them Arabic numerals, but it's actually invented in India, the system of numbers we use, and brought by the Arabs to the West. But Roman numerals are more complicated, and it didn't allow you to come up with the year zero 
or the, the concept of zero. That Roman numerals had no concept of zero. Um, that was invented later. That's why there is no year zero. There's year one. You always have to take that into account when you're dealing with that transition from BC to AD. But uh, the n numbers in Hebrew are letters of the alphabet. And what I would like to do is this, what, the, what Jewish people call gematria. Take a look at those numbers and their letter values and see if there's some sort of a code that is, you know, telling us something about those characters. It's something I have to do, though I don't have time right now, but it's some, one of the things I have to do. Otherwise, you know, I can't tell you much. But 120, yeah, that's not so impossible to deal with. And then we also have Grant on Vancouver Island. If you ever get a chance to go to Vancouver and Vancouver Island, do. It's just so beautiful there. Dear Father Mitch, I often hear some Christians evangelize a message of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as necessary for salvation. What do they mean by this, and is it supported by Scripture? Frankly speaking, I've neither encountered Jesus in the very personal way they suggest, nor in such a simple manner. My Christianity has more often than not been a hard-fought struggle to salvation and communion with others. Grant on Vancouver Island. Grant, you know, one of the things about personal relationships is that they vary. I don't know you, of course, but one of the things that I know about people is that some folks are very outgoing. Some folks are much more uh, quiet. Some folks are very emotional and their emotions are on their sleeves. Other folks are more intellectual and rational. And a lot of folks combine it. And yet they still have profound friendships. Now, having a friendship with Jesus Christ is scriptural. That's why our Lord says in the uh, Last Supper discourse in John chapter 15, I no longer call you servants, but friends. But he also can deal with the different kinds of personalities each one of us has. He likes the people who are more in their mind and heady, and he loves the people who are emotional. He doesn't, he made us to be with intellect and emotion. And he cherishes the different kinds of people who have varying ratios of reason and emotion. He cherishes them. And it sounds like you might not be the more emotional kind of person. That's fine. So you don't have to model your personal relationship with Christ on somebody else's. But you do need to let him be your friend. And even the struggle the hard-fought struggle to salvation in communion with others. You obviously care about other people. And our Lord cherishes that too. But the struggle that you have, you might take a look at the way St. Paul also had to struggle with our Lord until there was something of a breakthrough with Christ appearing to him. Now, he may not appear to you. I don't know. Uh, I don't tell God what to do. 
but neither should you worry about modeling your personal relationship on somebody else's. It's going to vary, just as you are a different person. That you love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself, this is what's required. And don't worry about the style of how you do it. All right, we'll be back in just a minute, so please stay with us. giving a retreat to a group of priests for a diocese. And this is Memorex, not live. So tomorrow we will have EWTN live, but it will be Father Joseph Mary of the Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word, who will be guest hosting EWTN live and talking with the director of the National Pontifical Mission Societies. Monsignor Kieran Harrington, and previewing a special EWTN documentary, which is airing at 10 p.m. Eastern Time tomorrow night. And that documentary is entitled Heart of a Missionary, the story of Pauline Jaricot, who was the foundress of the Society of the Propagation of the Faith, and the Association of the Living Roses. So please stay tuned for that. It'll be a very important one. All right, let us now take an email from Lisa in Red Bluff, California. Father Mitch, I know when the Pope speaks ex cathedra on faith and morals that all Catholics are to believe it to be true. The Magisterium of the Catholic Church also documents faith and morals that come from the Holy Spirit, and that all Catholics are to believe that these teachings are true. How do the Pope's ex cathedra statements and the magisterium differ from one another? Are they both from the Holy Spirit, Lisa and Red Bluff? They, uh, as a matter of fact, the very few teachings ex cathedra by the Pope's is Magisterial, that's magisterium teaching. Now, to teach ex cathedra is very rare. And, you know, for instance, the two most commonly cited ex cathedra statements are the decree of the dogma of the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary and of her Immaculate Conception. But they are part of the magisterium to help form it, along with the teaching of the councils and along with the ordinary magisterium of the church, the regular teaching by the pope. And within that magisterium, there are various hierarchies of truths. Some are higher in importance than others, but, you know, th this is... Um, something that you can look up uh, to understand the magisterium. And 
Um, there is a book by Ludwig Ott. I always confuse the exact title by, of Ott's book, but I think it's The Dogmas of the Catholic Church. Uh, uh, and he lists those, uh, all the magisterial teachings um, up to the time in which he wrote. It's a great, great book uh, if you want to find out what the various magisterial teachings are. All right. Then we have uh, from William in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Father Mitch, what does it mean in Romans 6, verse 7, where Paul writes, For he who has died is freed from sin. Does it mean that in baptism, when we die and rise with Christ, we are freed of sin? Yes, it does. Or does it mean when we undergo physical death, we are freed of sin? Nope. Um, that's not necessarily the case. <laughs> If you go to hell, you will continue to sin. You won't stop sinning if you end up in hell. Um, you won't be happy either, but you'll continue to sin. And with none of the pleasure that some sins entail while still in the flesh, it'll just be the pure misery of hatred. Um, but you are freed from sin by your baptism. And if you... Persevere to the end. That's why we pray for the grace of perseverance. If we persevere to the end, then we will, um, uh, you know, be free from sin after death as well. Only those who go to heaven are freed from sin permanently. Um, but baptism has us die to sin and brings forgiveness of all sins, original sin and all actual sin committed before baptism. Okay? And then, of course, if you commit other sins, go to confession. By the way, the book is called Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma by Ludwig Ott, O-T-T. Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. Great book. Boring as all get out. <laughs> I'm going to tell you at the outset, it is dull as dirt. But... The content is wonderful. It helps you to think through it. Um, you know, this is one of the advantages of getting a long education. If you go to school long enough, you become enculturated to boredom and start to like it. All right, we have another email from Rich in Davidsonville, Maryland. Father Mitch, in Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus says, Amen, I say to you, among those born of women, there has been none greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This clear assertion suggests that at the time of Jesus' statement, in some sense, John the Baptist was at least as great as, if not greater than, Mary, the mother of God, a person who was also born of women. Does this suggest that the greatness that comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, in uh, something referred to John in Luke 8, verse 15, exceeds the greatness of a human living on earth without original sin, Mary the Immaculate Conception? I don't quite know how I would evaluate. I, I don't think so. Um, it's been suggested by a number of theologians, but not taught as a dogma of the church, that John 
may have been freed from original sin in the womb by the Holy Spirit. So that the, when the, remember when Our Lady was carrying Jesus in her womb after just a few days uh, after conception. Um, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and her son within her starts leaping up and down. And the word scortize that is used for leaping refers to a lamb. You know, if you've ever seen sheep, they leap. All four legs go hopping. If you, in America, um, you, if you know about mule deer, they do the same thing. And a few other antelope do that as well. That when they get really excited, all four legs are off the ground. And that's the word used for John jumping up and down inside his mother's womb, apparently also filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's been a theological opinion that this may have been him being freed from original sin. So that would explain this. But that Our Lady never even had that still makes her superior to John the Baptist. And the church is very clear on her superiority over all the saints. She never had original sin, um, like uh, uh, who was conceived without original sin, like Adam and Eve were without original sin, but they fell into it and she never did. So that gives her greatness, whereas uh, John would have had it at conception, but is freed from it later. Okay. All right. And then from Susanetta. Dear Father Mitch, I know a few classmates, friends and relatives who bought into all of the distortions promulgated about Vatican II. They eagerly jumped into liberal thought and dismissed the Blessed Mother, saints and angels and even transubstantiation. Few of them went through ordination and are still priests, still believing what liberation theology told them. They've celebrated Mass all these years, not believing in transubstantiation. What is the status of the bread and wine if one of these non-believers celebrates the Mass? Susanetta. Susanetta, that's a very serious thing. It really is. A priest may not necessarily understand the church's teaching. And what the church requires that is, is that the priest consecrating intend what the church intends, which is transubstantiation. If they reject church teaching and they don't believe that they're doing what the words say they're doing, and they don't intend what the church said, they don't have that minimum, then it's not validly consecrated. Not at all. They have to at least intend what the church intends. And that doesn't seem possible if they are formally denying it. And so I would be very concerned about that. And I would, if you know that to be the case, you have to challenge them. I've had to challenge uh, priests who um, denied believing in the divinity of Christ. 
about being an addict, say it to his face. You know, what you're doing, you're a hypocrite. If you say the words of Mass and don't believe it, then you're a hypocrite, and, which means play actor in Greek. So you may have to say something if you know that to be the case. Calls into repentance would be the great thing to do, but point out the hypocrisy. All right, we want to continue praying for Ukraine and seeking the help of Our Lady of Fatima in this Ukrainian Greek Catholic icon of her. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to you, Blessed Mother, our great defender and constant intercessor. In this Easter season, we sing a joyful hymn of thanksgiving and praise for your revelations at Fatima to us, your children, indicating thereby the way of penance and amendment of life. In Christ and with you, we magnify God our Savior and exclaim, Rejoice, O Theotokos, Mother of God, of Fatima, unassailable wall and holy protection of your people of Rus. Lord, we ask that at the Our Lady's intercession, you bring conversion to the people of Rus, the people of Ukraine, the people of Russia, Mr. Putin, his soldiers, his generals, all, so that they might be filled with your love for all people, including the people of Ukraine, especially for them. And may God, our Lord, bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we can bring you these shows only because of your generosity. So please keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you. Thank you.